Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue the series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, in this episode we will complete our discussion about Jesus by talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension. To do this, I will primarily use Luke's Gospel account in chapters 23 and 24. We'll begin in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 38. Those verses say, When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. The first thing I will talk about is the inscription that was visible above Jesus. The irony of the inscription is that although the people who wanted him dead denied that he was the king of the Jews, in his death, the truth that Jesus is king was broadcast to the world. In fact, this truth was proclaimed in three languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is significant because at the time, Greek was the language of intelligence and education. Koine Greek was also the language that most people spoke. Latin was the language of law and order, and that's what the Romans spoke. Hebrew was the language of the Jews, who were in charge of the religious system. Hence, the title King of the Jews was broadcast loud and clear to the common folk, the educated elite, the governmental power structures, and to the religious leaders. This was fitting, since Christ was king over them all. Next, verses 39 to 41 say, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This latter criminal always amazed me, because when you incorporate what the text says from the other Gospels, both criminals actually began mocking Christ when he was first nailed to the cross. But then as the hours passed by, one criminal changed while he hung there on his own cross. Something dramatic happened. This criminal began to see that Jesus was not just another guy. He realized that Christ wasn't dying on his own behalf, but he was dying for others. Perhaps this criminal began to see that Jesus was dying for him. In a peculiar way, he began to see the acute reality that God was on the cross and God did not deserve to suffer, but he was suffering for others. Verses 42 to 43 then say, And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This is the most remarkable part. 
a man that the Romans thought wasn't worthy to live on earth is a man that Jesus declared was in fact worthy to live in heaven forever. And look at the difference. There were two criminals being crucified with Jesus, and both were in the same predicament. They were both guilty and both sentenced to death. But what separated one from the other is that one had faith. One believed in Jesus. And the only thing that this criminal could do was believe. His hands and his feet were literally stuck, so he couldn't do anything to save himself. He just believed, and this is what saved him. This simple picture at Calvary highlights the foundational principle that we are saved by faith in Jesus. It's just that simple. Verses 44 to 46 then say, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. In John 19.30, in reference to Jesus, it says, He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Note that for the two criminals beside Jesus, they had their lives taken from them, but Jesus voluntarily died when he committed his spirit to the Father. The text then tells us that after Jesus' dead body is removed from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea takes it, wraps it in linens, and then places the body in a tomb that was never used before. If people followed the ordinary rules after crucifixion, Jesus' body would have been thrown into Gehenna, which was like a garbage dump for dishonored corpses. But when Jesus died, not a bone of his body was broken, nor was his body allowed to be corrupted. Now, everything I've talked about so far described what happened historically. But we have to understand what the death of Jesus on the cross means theologically and in the context of the entire canon of Scripture. Christ's death is likely the second most important event in human history. The first, of course, was the birth of Jesus Christ, and the third was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus' death was so important that it is celebrated as a grand triumph. So why is that? The reason why is that because through his death, Jesus made an atonement for our sins. This word atonement is very, very important. Jesus' death wasn't just him dying. His death was not just him suffering to evoke an emotional response. To the Romans, his death was just another rabble-rouser being crucified. To the Jews, his death was just the elimination of a blasphemer. But to God himself, Christ's sacrifice was an atonement for our sins, and this atonement had cosmic implications. Simply defined, atonement refers to a reparation for a wrong or injury. The wrong that has been committed by all human beings is sin. Sin is a grievous offense to a holy God, and the penalty for sin is death. Hence, because of my sin, it should have been me on that cross. Because of your sin, it should have been you on that cross. But what did Jesus do? What Jesus did for all of his elects 2,000 years ago is allow himself to be killed in our place. He bore the penalty for all of our sins, took it to the cross, and died for us so we wouldn't have to. He was sinless and did not deserve to die, but accepted our penalty upon himself. In other words, Jesus was our substitute and therefore offered a substitutionary atonement. The principle of atonement connects perfectly with the Old Testament. 
Throughout the entire course of the Old Testament, we see a basic principle that when it comes to paying the penalty for sin, either you die or something else dies. In the book of Genesis, when Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him on the top of Mount Moriah, the point of the story was never a father sacrificing his son. The point of the story was that God stopped the sacrifice, but God now provided the sacrifice himself, and it's that animal that God provided which is what Abraham sacrificed. In the book of Exodus, in the tenth and final plague on the land of Egypt, God's angel came down and enacted judgment on the land of Egypt. But God's people were protected when the angel saw the blood of the lamb on the houses of those people who were gods. So in other words, instead of the people in the houses dying, the lamb died instead. God was then following the principle, either something else dies or you die. Throughout the book of Leviticus, we see the rules and regulations in regard to animal sacrifices. The point of the animal sacrifices was that whenever someone committed a sin or whenever someone was guilty, they sacrificed an animal to atone for their iniquities. In other words, either something else dies or you die. And on the Day of Atonement, which was described in Leviticus chapter 16, which is still referred to as Yom Kippur, there were two goats. There was one goat that was slain to pay the penalty for sin, and the other goat was the scapegoat, where the sin was symbolically put on the animal, and that goat was then released to be dispersed into outer darkness. Jesus was both the sacrifice that was slain for our sakes. Jesus was also executed outside of the city walls so that the sin bearer was killed outside of the camp. In other words, throughout the entire Old Testament, we read about a recurring theme. When it comes to paying the penalty for sin, either you die or something else dies, and Jesus fulfills that axiom in that he's the one that died in our place because of our sin. Let's take a step back and ask ourselves a probing question. Do we really think that there was any life-saving value in the blood of bulls or goats? Do we really think that God got anything out of the sacrifice of an animal that he made in the first place? The point of all of the animal sacrifices back in the Old Testament was simply to point to the reality of how holy and adequate they were in order to point forward to an adequate substitutionary atonement that was made finally and fully by our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let's move back to the actual crucifixion itself. Medically speaking, I must say that crucifixion is an extreme form of barbarism. Never mind the fact that nails are driven through your wrists and feet. That won't kill you. What will kill you is that the entire ordeal is essentially a slow, drawn-out suffocation where the harder you try to move, the more pain you're in, and the less you move, the quicker you die. The physical pain that Jesus endured could not compete with the spiritual forsakenness. You see, beloved, hell isn't so much a place than it is an experience. What actually defines hell is the complete separation from God. And on that day 2,000 years ago, Jesus suffered the full force of hell on that cross. 
our sin that he carried for us to the cross meant that he had to be separated from a sinless God so that God could unleash the most dreaded thing in the entire universe, the wrath of God. The wrath of God, of course, abhors sin and must judge it. Now you know why Christ sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, because God knew just how appalling the wrath of God is. So for hours on the cross, the sin that Christ took upon himself was judged, and God even made the sky go dark in the brightest part of the day to communicate the idea that judgment was happening. And then when Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. The full penalty for sin for all of the elect from eternity past to eternity future was paid in full. Sin is what separated us from our Heavenly Father, and once sin was atoned for, our alienation and separation from God was removed. This is why the veil in the temple was irrevocably torn in two when Jesus Christ died. So Jesus died, but the grave could not contain him. Luke chapter 24 verses 1 to 12 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Be mindful when you read these verses that the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. By the time the stone was rolled away, Jesus was already gone. The stone was rolled away to let other people in so that they could see the tomb was empty. Moreover, it is important to understand that our faith in the resurrection does not result from the fact that the tomb was found empty. Our faith results from the death of Christ plus the empty tomb plus the absence of a corpse, plus the multitude of post-resurrection appearances. We are not magically more refined and sophisticated now than people were back then. Back then, it was still very unusual for people to come back from the dead. This helps to explain that when all the men heard of Jesus' resurrection, they all thought it was nonsense. In fact, a grand irony of the Bible is that the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ were women, but back then, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. So the women believed but were not credible, but the men who were credible witnesses were all skeptical. Luke 24:11 says, But these words appear to the apostles as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Nevertheless, these skeptics who were the apostles would soon go on to preach the truth of the resurrection and lay the foundation for the Christian church. 
many of the apostles ended up dying for the truth. There is a scene that happens subsequent to the immediate post-resurrection appearance. Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us about two men traveling on the road to Emmaus. These two men thought that Jesus was dead and was never coming back. Their hope was deflated because of unfulfilled expectations. And what does Jesus do? He appears to the men, but the text says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Notice what happens in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. That text says, And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The risen Christ did not point to his flesh wounds and say, hey guys, look at these. Instead, he went back to the scriptures. In other words, he went back to what we would call the Old Testament. He calls the men fools for not believing the present based upon what was prophesied in the scriptures. This is a valuable lesson for all of us who live in an age of skepticism. If we take Jesus' advice, then if you have doubts, you should actually examine the evidence for yourself. The most unsophisticated thing you can do is say, this is nonsense. That approach doesn't actually require any work, and anyone can make that assertion without any thought. Even Satan knows that Jesus rose from the dead and doesn't want anyone reading the scriptures. So, one of his favorite strategies is to dismiss the evidence as bunk before you even attempt to examine it. In 1 Corinthians 15.14, the Apostle Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain. Why does Paul write this? Well, if Christ was not raised, then the Bible is lying about something, and if the Bible is lying about one thing, then it cannot be trusted. But Christ was raised. Why does this matter? To put things very simply, think of it this way in the form of a question and answer. Question, how can you trust God? Answer, trust the one who died for you and then came back from the dead to tell everyone about it. The resurrection of Christ means that God is sovereign. God is in control of everything and he proved his power over death through the resurrection. The resurrection proved that God is trustworthy and that he made good in his promises. The resurrection proved that Christ's work was complete and effectual. The resurrection points us to the one who resurrected, Jesus. It was not Allah or Buddha or humanism that rose from the dead. It was Christ. Trust in him and you will live. But how can we trust him? Why should we trust him? Because he resurrected. The resurrection means that God really is for us because he sent his son to live and then die for us. But God refused to leave his son alone, so Christ was raised. Now we are sure that for anyone in Christ, they will be raised to eternal life. Can you save yourself from death or lift yourself up from the grave? No. But who can? The one who resurrected. The resurrection means that Jesus was raised for our justification. 
So when God sees one of his elect, he sees a new creature whose sin has been paid for in full, and he sees the perfect righteousness of the Messiah. The resurrection gives us hope that for all those who have faith in Christ, we will one day be raised up in new imperishable bodies and fellowship with the Lord in paradise forever. The final thing I'll talk about is the ascension of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24 verses 50 to 53 says, And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This text tells us that men were eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrected Christ. These men then followed God's plan and took that witness into the world. What the rest of the New Testament will tell us is that these men followed God's plan and took that witness into the world. They preached the gospel or the good news, which simply stated that by trusting in Jesus, a person will be saved. Of course, these men were not alone because the power to carry the witness was enabled by the Holy Spirit. This text also tells us about the ascension of Christ into heaven. Many Bible teachers tend to skim over the ascension and focus more attention on the cross and resurrection. So why is the ascension important? It's important because it describes the coronation of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. Son of Man is a term first used in Daniel 7.13. The Son of Man is one who is described as having glory and an eternal kingdom where people of all nations and languages serve Him. The Son of Man has an everlasting dominion over the entire universe. Jesus is the Son of Man, so when He ascended, where did He go? He ascended to His coronation. He ascended to sit down in heaven and to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords because his work was done. Hence, Christ is our King and our King reigns victorious right now at this very moment. We aren't waiting for Christ to be King because he already is. I mention this to highlight one acute point. Because Christ already reigns, we never labor to make him King. We never do anything in the world so that he becomes king. We have abundant joy knowing that Christ is king, and we step out into the world as ambassadors of the king. Our delight, therefore, is not in the response of the crowd or how the culture around us changes. Our delight is in knowing that our God reigns, and one day he will come back and make his invisible rule visible here on earth. Seen this way, a unified body of believing ambassadors is what constitutes the church. God sent Jesus, and now that Jesus' work is done, he now sends us into the world. Christ's work is complete and effectual. The only thing that now needs to be done is for the world to know about him. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.